humans. Hello, 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 great humans. Good Monday morning to you. A spring morning. We are past the sub zero temperatures, hopefully, making our way towards jacket weather at least. And here you are listening to me on LE 2.0, where I talk about being a practical idealist and share about other idealists. And who am I? I am Ellie Krug. There you go. One of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world. That's why you hear the name Ellie in contrast to the voice that sounds so masculine. Sorry that I have to keep saying that. But um, it's the reality of being on the radio, and hopefully we're getting new listeners as we go along. Today, I want to speak about a person who's known as Canada's Rosa Parks. It's a woman named Viola Desmond. She was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, to a white mother and a black father. She was born in, early, in the early 1900s. She grew up... Uh, realizing uh, that there was no uh, hair and skin care products for black women. So just let's make sure we paint this picture. This is a biracial couple um, who had a number of different children, including um, Viola, um, in Nova Scotia. So we don't ordinarily think about Canada as being a place where, first of all, they're I, I, I'm going to guess there are some some listeners that don't necessarily think that there were a whole lot of black people in Nova Scotia in um, you know, the early uh, part of last century. And then um, I'm going to guess that most people don't even consider the fact that there would be biracial couples there. Because you may remember that in the United States, um, in many states, it was illegal for there to be a black man and a white woman to be married uh, together. Um, that was illegal in the United States, in many states, until 1967. So you have a situation in Nova Scotia where Viola Desmond is growing up. And as she's growing up, she realized that there was no, no products for her hair or for people in her community relative to the skin. And because she was black, she was not allowed to train as a beautician in Halifax. So again, there you go, Canada having some issues like we did. So Viola ended up going to New York City where she got training to be a um, beautician as well as a skincare specialist. Then she returned to Halifax uh, to open a hair salon and then created a beauty product line. So we're talking this is happening in the late 30s, early 40s um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And as she was doing this, she understood the need to assist other women of color. And so she opened up a beauty school in Halifax. Think of Aveda here in the Twin Cities. But this uh, was revolutionary in its time because not only was she training women on how to be beauticians, she was also training them on how to run a business. So it was vertical integration that she was teaching them. She was teaching them on how to open and run beauty salons and how to employ other black women. And as part of uh, her work, she traveled through Nova Scotia um, doing various uh, work-related activities. And in November of 1946, while Viola Desmond was driving in New, uh, in New Glasgow, 
Nova Scotia. Her car broke down. She was on a business trip at the time. The car broke down. The mechanic said it's going to take one day to get parts to repair your vehicle, so she had time to kill. And so she decided that she would go to a movie in uh, this uh, city of New Glasgow. Now, there were no formal Jim Crow laws in Nova Scotia, but there were certainly practices. And at this movie theater, the practice was that blacks would sit in the balcony and their ticket to sit in the balcony cost 20 cents. And whites would sit on the main floor. And whites were charged more for that. They were charged 40 cents to sit on the main floor. And there was a tax attached to, to that ticket price. Um, and as it turned out, the tax for uh, the white ticket was one cent more than the tax for blacks. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and so Viola, she goes to the movie theater to see a, a movie. She buys a ticket that, that she's only going to be able to get a, a ticket for black people, and that would be to sit in the balcony. But she decides that um, she's going to go sit on the main floor because she was nearsighted and she could see the screen uh, better. So she's sitting on the main floor. She's a black woman, and she's asked to move. She's asked to move to the balcony. At that point, she figures out what's going on because apparently she did not fully understand initially that um, she was supposed to sit in the balcony. And when she re realized that she was not, that there was segregation in this theater, she absolutely refused to move from the main floor to the balcony. And in fact, according to the, um, you know, the history here as I'm reading it, uh, she was quote-unquote forcibly removed from the theater, which ended up injuring her... Uh, hip, uh, and uh, and she eventually she was arrested. She was kept overnight in the jail, and then she was charged with, believe it or not, she was charged with tax evasion because she didn't pay the extra one cent on the ticket in order to sit on the main floor. That's, uh, yep, that's that's what the charge was. So she ended up getting uh, some help from a white lawyer. And she went to the Nova Scotia Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So Nova Scotia had an NAACP, um, just like we have the NAACP here in the United States. And uh, they helped hire this lawyer for her. However, the lawyer made a tactical uh, mistake. He decided to argue um, on the tax evasion claim rather than to claim that the whole scenario was set up as a result of racial discrimination. And unfortunately, uh, Viola lost her, her court case. And she lost it because the, the white lawyer made a mistake. And in fact, the trial judge in ruling against Viola actually said that if the lawyer had argued a different theory, that would be if he had argued about racial discrimination, the result in the case would have been different. So this so um, demoralized Viola that after the trial, she moved to Montreal, left Nova Scotia where she enrolled in a business college. And later on, she moved to New York City and um, um, eventually she died in early age at 50 because of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. Uh, subsequently, there were movies about her life and books as well. And, and, and even in uh, Nova Scotia, there's a ferry named after her. Um, and on International Women's Day this year, um, which was uh, earlier this earlier in March, I think it's the, it was March 8th, um, there was an announcement 
that Viola Desmond would appear, she would be the very first woman to ever appear on Canadian currency alone. Um, she actually, um, her image is going to appear on a $10 Canadian bill. Um, on top of that, um, in 2010, the government of Nova Scotia granted Viola a posthumous free pardon um, to right the wrong of her conviction. And so they came forward, they finally admitted that what uh, convicting her of tax evasion was wrong, that that was, a, um, that was a wrong, and they decided that they would create um, a right, that they would change that injustice and give her at least a pardon. Of course, that does not do her much good, but I think that it did her family, her survivors, some good. Now, I am absolutely certain that there are thousands of Viola Desmonds and Rosa Parks out there in the world. No doubt about it. They're there. I'm going to be bringing some of those to you in the future as we continue to do this show, Ellie 2.0, which, as you may know, is my show about, as you may remember, my show about practical idealism, the fact that we don't talk about idealism nearly enough. Um, but sharing stories like this, it shows you what happens when you are determined? It shows what happens when you are brave. Can you, can you just put yourself in that movie theater with Viola at that time when somebody is yelling at her in the middle of a movie, telling her that she needs to get out of that seat, that she needs to go upstairs where all the black people are supposed to sit. And can you imagine the degree of bravery that it took for her, just like it took bravery for Rosa Parks to remain seated in that, on that bus, on that bus seat, the degree of bravery that it took to face oppression. These stories are incredibly important. These are stories that we need to share, that we need to pass on, because it is from acts of bravery, individual acts of bravery, that we do learn. We do learn what it means to be brave. We do learn what it means to have resolve and courage. And without those stories, without the Viola Desmonds of the world or the Rosa Parks, we won't know how to change, how to change things, how to change the landscape as it exists in the world, in the past. And we need to do that. That's what idealism is all about. It's believing that one person, one human, can make a difference in the world. When we come back, I'll do my big B segment. Thank you very much. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Um, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Bye. This is Pat with PJW Automotive. How do you choose an automotive repair shop? I bet you look for quality and dependability. You want someone you can trust to do the job right the first time. It saves you money and hassle because you're not coming back over and over again. My team of top-notch automotive specialists knows vehicles inside and out, and I guarantee it's worth the drive to PJW Automotive. One exit north of 694 on 35W and online at pjwauto.com. 
Next time on Philosophy Talk, Adorno and the Culture Industry. Theodore Adorno said that capitalism creates cultural crap. Don't blame them. Blame us. They're just giving us what we want. What they make us want so they can keep the gravy train running. You really think the cultural industry just manipulates us? It sure doesn't enlighten us. Adorno and the Culture Industry. Next time on Philosophy Talk. Philosophy Talk. Every Sunday at 8 a.m. and again at 2 p.m. on AM 950. I'm Adam Jennings, and I approve this message. Most politicians fall into two categories. Robots, who focus group every word they say, and wingnuts, who go off script and off the rails. Here's my story, spoken from the heart. I worked at the Ford plant as a proud member of the United Auto Workers. I served in the Minnesota Army National Guard. I owned a small business that helped homeless vets find housing. I've overseen a $9 billion portfolio. I'm a member of my city council, and I'm married to a pediatrician and have children who attend public schools. So I don't need a pollster to tell me what working families need. Healthcare is a right, and gun violence is a wrong. And we are the only country in the world that elects politicians who haven't figured this out. It's time for a change. You don't need a mediator or yes man in Washington. You deserve a fighter. Join me at JenningsForCongress.com, and let's take our party back. Paid for by Adam Jennings for Congress. Hi, this is Gregory Rich from Habitation Furnishing and Design, and I'd like you to tune in to a new program, Drink in the Style. Sundays at 5 p.m., Drink in the Style is going to be a one-hour conversation about interior design and aesthetics, all while enjoying a cocktail created by a local mixologist. Drink in the Style, Sundays at 5 p.m., brought to you by Habitation Furnishing and Design. What could be more Russian than Matryoshka, the nesting doll? I welcome you to see one of the largest collection of Matryoshka in the world, now on display at the Museum of Russian Art. A stunning range of sizes, types, and areas are represented, showing how this iconic souvenir has evolved over the last 120 years. Our thanks to Target for sponsoring this extraordinary exhibition, Open Daily. Find out about all our exhibitions and events at tmora.org. That is tmora.org. And we are back on Ellie 2.0. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, your host. Um, we've been talking, I talked about Viola Desmond. And on, as it turns out, on the very day that Viola Desmond uh, was being announced as the new face of the $10 bill in Canada. That was on International Women's Day, March 8th. I happened to be in Canada. I was speaking at a large uh, law firm in Ottawa, and I was able to talk. I was actually speaking about women. I had been asked at that law firm, and I'm going to talk about um, this talk that I give, I've been asked at that law firm to talk about what it's like to go from male to female to live in a different uh, gender and uh, to now at this point I've been living as female, I've been, I transitioned in 2009, so I mean we're coming up on nine years of me being able to finally live as me and, and let me just tell you it is a different picture over on this side of the gender fence and so, 
when I give this talk, um, you know, it, uh, the talk in Ottawa was titled um, uh, Ellie Krug, colon, uh, Changed Genders, Changed Perspective. I gave that talk in Ottawa, and then the next week I gave the talk in Kansas City um, as well. And um, part of that talk is about the mechanical of really what it's like to to go from male to female, about how women just speak differently. You know, uh, I was taught, I had to go through speech therapy, and I was taught about how women um, speak with up-speak, up and I just did that to you, and how women use hedges, you know. Do you, do you think you know what that means? You know, that's uh, kind of a hedge. Um, but also in that talk, I talk about the need to, um, the need about how, of understanding that women have an affinity that's much different and in some degrees much stronger than the affinity for men. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, and if you want to hear that full talk, you know, have me come and ask, ask me to come and speak because some of what I talk about, about affinity is, uh, we, I don't have enough time on the radio and, and it's too complicated to explain. But one part of the talk that I can explain is about, um, is about, how it ties into my theory about humans having empathetic hearts and wanting to do the right thing. So in my talk in Ottawa, as well as, again, on my talk the next week in Kansas City, I spoke about how men are hunter-gatherers and women are nurturers. And now many of us, we already know that. Um, but what we don't think about is that women, I think men are focused on the present, whereas women, to a large degree, are focused on the future. We are focused on shaping the future to protect our children. Men, far more immediate. They far more like, what's, you know, what's up right now? And that would be the hunter-gatherer kind of mentality that, that we have these immediate needs that we need to protect. The, we need to satisfy these immediate needs for myself as well as for the people that I'm caring for, my tribe, and I'm going to go out and do them. Women, however, um, and I... You know, my theory is because we're infused with estrogen, uh, women take a kind of a long game approach to the way the world works. And much of that long game is tied into wanting to make sure that our children succeed and that our children are protected. So I talk about what you just heard in my talk. And then my talk also includes a shout out for calls to action for women and about women. So one call for action is to avoid classism and to value all women of all income stratas and stations in life. Yep, because we humans, we like to group and label, and part of how we do that is on the basis of class. Tied into that call to avoid classism is a call, was a call for action about the need to protect girls and young women. They are the future after all. And in making that call for action, both in Ottawa and in Kansas City, while I spoke, I, I, I asked women in the audience, who is a formal mentor to a young girl? And specifically, I asked, who is a big sister? Now, um, and when I say big sister, I'm talking about big sister through the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Um, I have been a big, that's what they call us, a big to a, quote, little, that's what they call um, our mentees. I've been a big to a little for about five and a half years. 
In fact, my little Jasmine um, has been interviewed on the radio, on my other radio show, Hidden Edges Radio. I actually interviewed her once because I wanted to, uh, the audience to hear what it was like for a biracial girl, she identifies as black, what it's like for her to go through the world right now, in this world that we're in. So in my talk in Ottawa and in Kansas City, I, I, I did a shout-out to the audience. And who here formally mentors to a girl or a young woman and, and, and or either formally through some mechanism and who here does it through Big Sisters, Big Brothers? And as it turned out, both in Ottawa and in Kansas City, in each set of audiences, one person raised their hand. In Canada, in Ottawa, the woman had been a big for 10 years. My God, that is such a long time. And in Kansas City, the woman had been a big for four years. Again, quite a long time. And, um, and it, was, it just buoyed me. I mean, it just made me feel so good that in the audience, just like me, there were other bigs, other women who had been devoting time. I mean, it's not easy to be a formal mentor because it takes time out of your schedule. It takes um, commitment. It takes some dollars because, you know, you go out to dinner, you go out to lunch, you go to the Dairy Queen or whatever. It costs some money. And it takes um, just this knowledge that, you know, that you always have to remember that while you're not maybe getting a payoff from doing this, you're not seeing results from doing this. It's the knowledge in the background of knowing that, yes, it's making a difference. So when I'm in Ottawa and in Kansas City and I see a woman in each room raise their hand uh, up in the air, and if you're watching me on Facebook Live right now, I just raised my hand, um, uh, you know, it made me feel so really good. And, um, and me being me... Um, standing there in front of those audiences in Ottawa and in Kansas City, me being me, I said, we need more bigs. We need more bigs, more formal mentors for girls and young women, particularly from marginalized communities, particularly like black girls or Latinas. We need them. And so I... I spoke about how critical it was to have positive role models, how many young women um, who are smart and imaginative and have great promise are being lost to chaos, to abuse, to a lack of dreams because no one is sharing a dream. No one is giving them a dream. And I actually believe that mentorship, real mentorship, is a ticket. It's a way of providing somebody with a ticket out of the despair that our country is facing. It is a way of breaking the cycle of poverty. And I am a pusher. I am, when I go into an organization, I have great respect. I'm kind and gentle, but I am a pusher. I am a kind and gentle catalyst. And I will tell people things that they might not want to hear. I will, because you know what? Yeah, I make people uncomfortable, but there you go. So here's the kicker. Why, Ellie? Okay, Ellie, you're telling us about stuff that happened in Ottawa and Kansas City. Here's the kicker. Why am I doing this? The reason I'm doing that is that in each place, in Ottawa and in Kansas City, after I got done speaking, in each place, a woman came up to me. So one in Ottawa, one in Kansas City. A woman came up to me after I've done speaking and said that my talk my shout-out for bigs, for mentors, 
had spurred them right there on the spot to commit to decide that they would be a big, that they would go to brother, big brothers and big sisters and that they would volunteer. And in fact, the woman in Canada said that she had been thinking about it, but that my shout out and the fact that she saw another woman in the audience raise her hand about having been a big, that that was quote unquote a sign for her that she needed to go and volunteer and become a big. Now, of course, if you're doing the work that I'm doing, I'm standing in front of audiences, I'm trying to push ideas about how to change the world. It is a very lonely business, trust me. And I'll tell you, but hearing, and, and very often, you know, and in Canada and, and in Kansas City, I had people coming up to me saying, oh, that was a great talk. I mean, it's not unfrequent that people tell me I'm the best speaker they ever heard, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? None of that mattered nearly as much as each of the, hearing from each of those women, one in Ottawa, one in Kansas City, saying to me, Ellie, I'm going to go and be a big. That's really what made a difference to me. And it folds into my belief that 99% of us all are good. We have good hearts, but we just absolutely need to be led the way. We need to be given the pathway on how to do good. And once we are, we will show up. And so I don't see that my idealism is silly at all, as sometimes I think, but really not, because my idealism is real. It ripples to others. It does. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug. On with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. If you enjoyed the show, email me at Ellie 2.0, Ellie 2.0 radio at gmail.com. Let me know what topics you've liked covered. Tell others about the show. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. I will be back next Monday with something else to inspire you. Bye bye.